are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to The Addiction Files. We have a fantastic episode tonight. Uh, We have two guests joining us to discuss professional health programs. So we have licensed clinical social worker Kelly Jacobson and Dr. Robert Simpson. And I'm going to turn it over to them to introduce themselves. And then we're just going to talk about what are some of the myths associated with these programs? And what are some of the benefits? Who is involved? Like, so who qualifies for these programs? How do you enter these programs? What is some of the monitoring involved? And more. So I'll turn it over to you guys and let's get started. So my name is Kelly Jacobson and um, I'm the program manager of the Utah Professionals Health Program. And the Utah Professionals Health Program is a professionals health program that's been created by the Division of Professional Licensing to assist certain licensed healthcare professionals who are struggling with substance use disorder. Great. That's awesome. <laughs> We're happy to have you, Kelly. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm I'm Robert Simpson. I'm the medical director for the Utah Professionals Health Program. Is that all you're gonna give us, Dr. Simpson? Can you give us a little bit about your background? What do you what have you done in your career? Well, um I, I initially trained in internal medicine, pulmonary and critical care medicine. And uh, I was at the University of Utah and um working in intensive care primarily, sleep medicine as well. And uh, in 2011, um, I went and got my own substance use disorder treated, and um, it was a profound experience, life-changing. And um, after that, I retrained in addiction medicine and have worked in this field in one way or another ever since. Wonderful. Amazing. Well, we're grateful to have you, and we're very lucky in Utah to have a professional's health program. So, well, my first question, and we'd love to just we'd love to just hear all about the whole program. But does every state in the U.S. have a program like this, or is it just dependent on state by state, and who determines whether or not a program like this exists? I think Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, I think uh, 48 or 49 states now have. Uh, professional health programs, and they're all a, a, a little bit different in terms of the professions that they that they serve. Um, California is a notable exception, and, uh, and I think there's one other state that that doesn't have one. But um, most states do, and and that's because um, there's been recognition of the importance of professional uh, healthcare professional well-being. And that uh, healthcare professionals, like all other people, suffer from substance use disorders and and uh, co-occurring illnesses. Right. So, so tell us what is a professional's health program for those of us who don't know. Give us a definition of what it is and why it exists, when it started, and and let's go from there. So, professionals' health programs are typically confidential programs that healthcare professionals can participate. Confidential meaning that the public is not aware of participation in the program and neither is a professional licensing board. Oftentimes, uh, 
PHPs are considered alternative to public discipline programs. So healthcare professionals who may be facing discipline against their license due to some sort of misconduct related to their substance use disorder uh, can, can participate in a PHP as an alternative to discipline. And essentially, PHPs provide monitoring, um, confidential monitoring, and monitoring typically looks like um, evaluation, following through with any treatment recommendations, random toxicology testing, attendance at support group meetings. There's usually a requirement to have a worksite liaison, someone in the work setting, typically a supervisor who's aware of their participation in the program and can support the individual throughout the monitoring process. Okay, that's fascinating. And so who, so you said that it's often an alternative to disciplinary action. So I'm guessing that people get referred into it some way. So how do people get referred and can they be self-referred? And then my third question is, which healthcare professionals qualify? Like, is it physicians and nurses? Is it beyond those kind of direct patient care professionals that extend to dentists and, and, and those professionals as well, Kaylee? And for our program, the professions that qualify for services are physicians, uh, physician assistants, anyone who's licensed under the Nursing Act, uh, dentists, anyone licensed under the Dental Act, which would also include dental hygienists, um, anyone licensed under the Pharmacy Act, Podiatrists and veterinarians are eligible for the program. Okay, that's interesting. So, if anyone under the pharmacist acts, that includes like pharmacy technicians and all the way down. And yeah. insurance, correct. Essentially, mm -hmm. anybody who can prescribe substances or or touches control substances really can participate in in our program. And okay. in, in terms of referrals, so people can indeed be self referred. So they recognize, look, I've got a I've got a problem and I need to do something about it. They can they can call us up. I mean, you know, initially anonymously, right? They don't have to say, you don't have to give us their name. They can just inquire. Um, more commonly, what's happening is that people come to us because uh, they are given an ultimatum by an employer that um, you know, perhaps they've, they've been intoxicated in the workplace or there's been diversion of medication and the employer says, well, look, you, know, you, need, to, you need to contact UPHP. And increasingly, we get referrals from within the Doppel investigations. Um, so if diversion occurs or intoxication in the workplace occurs, then the employer um, is actually obliged to, to uh, open a, a double investigation and um, the investigations folks work with us collaboratively so that if there's a substance use disorder and there's been no patient harm that's occurred they will refer people to us as well uh, we'd love for more people to come to us because they recognize they've they've you know they've got an issue that they that they need to get help with um, but unfortunately most most healthcare professionals have no idea that we actually exist. And so, you know, it's great to be with you today. And hopefully, you know, it's it's part of, um, you know, increasing awareness that, that this service does exist. 
Um, as Kelly said, you know, the, the confidentiality piece and alternative to discipline, those are really big deals because if somebody has disciplinary action taken against their license, then uh, as a consequence of that, if, for a physician, for example, it can become very difficult to, um, they will lose board certifications, they will lose the ability to um, panel with insurers to credential with hospitals, often the DEA will take action. And so there's kind of a cascade of events that occurs that ultimately just makes it uh, impossible really for somebody to be able to work. Um, and we can we can avoid much of that. So so that that's an important point. And then you know for people who are kind of saying, well this is housed within Doppel, but it's not disciplinary. That, that's that's confusing too, but it's important that people know that there's really an informational firewall around our program, so that participation in our program truly is um, truly is confidential. So, if somebody self refers, which it sounds like that's quite rare, so there's not been a disciplinary action, a case opened up, and there's not been a doppel investigation. Do is there mandatory reporting are you required to report to doppel if somebody self-refers to your program no um we're, we're not yeah. we we have um a statute that allows us to accept a patient into our program in lieu of uh, disciplinary action being taken um so we have we have no uh, duty to to report um, to uh, to DOP or, or or to the the relevant uh, boards. I think that is such an important point, and and I don't think that message is being given to professionals, right? You know, and I mean, I think that's why this episode's so important that they, yeah. you know, there's so many out there suffering that if they just knew that, hey, you can reach out confidentially, get help that's confidential and your license can still be protected and you know how many more would seek help that's what i you know that's what you have to ask right yeah we 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 know in you know many states have had programs that that have been in existence much longer than ours and, and we know that over time that um once these programs are known about that that healthcare professionals will will utilize that and um, your point is a, is an important one that we we know that at any you know over the course of a career that the likelihood of a healthcare professional developing a substance use disorder is is at least equivalent to somebody in the general population so between ten and fifteen percent of people possibly more and so at, at any given time there's a, a point prevalence of about 1% of, um, of healthcare professionals who will meet criteria for a substance use disorder. And in Utah right now, the number of licensees that, that, that we serve who currently hold a license would be about 70,000. Um, and so, you know, we, we would, um, so we would we would anticipate that right now there are probably between seven and eight hundred who have a um, who have a substance use disorder, um, but we have about a hundred participants in our program. Wow! So it's, that just speaks to 
I mean, in general, how many people with a substance use disorder kind of lie in the shadows dealing with dealing with it on their own, whether or right. not they know how to access treatment or they want to, or there's barriers for all the reasons that we know exist and don't know exist. So those exist within healthcare professionals and probably can be even more so because of fear of repercussions, like you've just mentioned, and stigma and and shame and all those things, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those yeah. are amplified in in the populations that, that we that we serve and so you know i mean we have dual roles which is which are not only to provide advocacy and support for healthcare professionals but also to to protect public safety and so you know we know that if people are out there with substance use disorders and they they progress to the point where their substance use disorder is impairing that that the public safety is is jeopardized and so we have a uh, an interest in um, intervening earlier in the disease process, both for their benefit, but also for the benefit of the public. So, and there's interesting data coming out now. I'm, I, you're both probably more aware of it than we are, but on physicians specifically, I don't know about other healthcare providers, rates of alcohol use and alcohol use disorder post-pandemic that are quite alarming, actually, like during the pandemic, especially physicians who were over drinking and would actually meet criteria for a substance use disorder was alarmingly high. It was like one in five or something like that. So yeah, it's, it's, and it makes sense that you would want to intervene early to, to protect public safety. And then also for people to be able to get the help that they need. Do yeah. <clears throat> Robert, do medical students and residents or dental students, or anyone in the student arena, do they qualify for, for these programs? Not, not yet. So, um, one of the one of the criteria for being in the program is is holding a current license. Um, but it's very much our hope that we will be able to engage with with students in in the future. I think just one thing that's important to note is we talked about the variations across states and in terms of what issues they monitor and what you know, who they serve and many other states do serve, um, provide services to residents or medical students. And so I think it's important, you know, where whatever state you're in to, to know what that resource is, what conditions they monitor and, and, you know, whether it's just licensees or students, um, because it does vary across states. Yeah. And I guess it's really important for um, states where, non-licensees, you know, have substance use disorder or pre-substance use disorder, you know, or mild, that they know where to go uh, to yeah. get help. Obviously, if they can't access it through a program such, you know, like in Utah, such as your own. One of the things I was thinking about, and I was just reflecting on my own experience as a healthcare provider, there's a lot more awareness now about burnout and provider burnout. And we have a wellness committee and we have burnout, you know, self-scoring scales and these measures that seem to be quite well-directed and and well-deserved. However, I don't think I've ever been surveyed other than filling out my credentialing paperwork about whether or not how I'm doing with regards to substances. I just was thinking about that. And they're never part of a burnout survey, which it seems to me they really should be because a lot of times people are responding to professional burnout with the use of substances. 
Do you think that? Well, right. do you think that's true? Or is that just a personal thought? There's little doubt that that's that's true. I think the relationship is is bidirectional. The the providers who are burned out are more likely to develop uh, to to turn to substances. Alternatively, I think providers who have substance use disorders are more likely to become burned out as well and you know grow disengaged and feel that the work they're doing is not important not rewarding and so it's a it's a vicious cycle but there's no doubt that they coexist so lead us through uh, the process so say that um say that i develop or i have an existing substance use disorder that's very active and my employer notices that i'm late to work every monday i'm calling in two mondays a month not making it there and you know one of my patients complains that i maybe smell of alcohol and um and i get called in and and i admit to my employer say the hospital that i work for that i'm having difficulty managing my alcohol use and they refer me to you what's the process from start to finish that i would go through with you yeah so the the first step would be meeting with us for an intake session and the purpose of that intake is to just understand your situation and your needs and from there we're making a couple decisions the first is are you currently safe to practice your profession and uh, because as Robert mentioned, we have a duty to not only um, address your the healthcare professionals' health health and well-being, but also public safety. So we're making a decision about um, you know whether or not this person is safe to practice. Um, also determining um, what we need to do to intervene, whether that is a referral directly to treatment, um, but most often. It's a referral for a comprehensive evaluation that will help us determine, you know, diagnostically if someone has a substance use disorder, and if so, what treatment is recommended, and are, and are they currently safe to practice or not, and if not, what things need to happen. When we're talking about substance use disorder, usually that's treatment and some stability. So, as Robert mentioned earlier, most people come to us in the later stages when their disease has progressed to the point where we're seeing impairment in the work setting. And so for most folks, um, you know, we'll ask them to um, withdraw from practice while they undergo treatment. And once they complete um, the initial stages of treatment, they'll begin monitoring with us. And monitoring, as I mentioned earlier, looks like, you know, ensuring that they're following through with treatment recommendations, random random testing, attendance at support group meetings. I like to, I kind of describe it as, we're kind of like forcing people to put themselves first because most of us, and I think healthcare professionals put ourselves last. And so it's really a way of prioritizing your health and making it the priority. Sometimes people don't see it that way in the beginning, but they do over time uh, recognize um, the need for that. And so what's a typical duration of time that you monitor someone? Is it set time or is it dependent on the treatment recommendations for that person? Monitoring on our program is for five years. And the, the reason for that is, um, and Robert, you could jump in here and speak to the research a little bit more, but the research that has been done has been done with, um, I think, well, Robert, why don't you talk about the research? So the... Uh... 
the the current five year program duration is is based on a, a fairly old study that was done um, more than a decade ago, which um, suggested that that after five years of monitoring, that healthcare professionals who participated in our program or a program like ours would have 80% success rates. That is that they would be in long-term stable recovery and they would um, be working in their, in their profession. Um, there's currently uh, a good deal of research underway looking at some of the more kind of granular detail about what, what the secret source is there in terms of, you know, is it the duration of treatment? Is it the monitoring paradigms that are used? Is it is it the duration of the monitoring itself? What are the critical variables? Can some people be monitored for a shorter period of time, for instance, if they have if they have mild um, substance use disorder, or if they perhaps don't have um, as uh, as many co-occurring conditions. Um, so, so clearly, there's more research needed. But at the moment, um, it's a it's a five year program. And the data is quite remarkable. I mean, coming out of that in terms of success and in and it's re- it's reinsuring, and it makes us wonder why on earth we think we can you know treat people for 30 days in a residential program and expect right. them to to do well right right yeah no it, it's 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 absolutely it's it's absolutely remarkable and i think you know it it speaks to um the the benefits of having really what is a, a recovery oriented care system again our program we don't provide the services we we provide chronic disease management and um, and so when the disease is managed in a comprehensive, multidisciplinary way, outcomes can be extraordinarily good. And, and I mean, you're quite right. What if we were able to engage people with substance use disorders who were, were not healthcare professionals in programs like these? Could we in, enhance the rates of recovery? And I think the answer is is yes. It's just that people's willingness to to do that is also, you know, diminished. Right? There's kind of a sword of Damocles with with somebody's professional license. Um, in that, you know, if if they if they want to continue to work in uh, in in their chosen profession, then then participation in a program and developing um, long term recovery is, is is you know paramount. What happens if someone's Defiant, or or fails just because they're substance. <laughs> what if? <laughs> when? When someone is defiant? How do you manage that? How, what's your approach? And uh, and what if someone fails? Like quotation mark fails this approach. What's the next step for them if they don't follow through with the monitoring? If they don't show up for their drug testing, or they don't go to treatment as you recommend? Then what happens? Well, I mean, <laughs> Kelly. We, <laughs> <laughs> we try to employ motivational interviewing techniques and 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 you know, we we do have to impose sanctions in at some point if if someone's not willing to engage because again we we do have to ensure that the the public safety is protected but we work very very hard with people um i mean initially it's about relationship building right 
um, and and getting them to see that we that we really want a good outcome for them that that we we will engage with them in such a way as to try to foster that but but there's an uncomfortable sort of balance there in terms of how do we how do we do that and and give people um, chances without uh, jeopardizing either their health or the well-being of the people that they look after and it's a it's a delicate balance, and I I know it keeps uh, it keeps me awake at night. I'm sure it keeps Kelly awake at night too sometimes. Um, yeah, <laughs> typically, you know, we try to have therapeutic interventions. So as Robert mentioned, you know, we're always looking at you know the safety of the person and the safety of the public, and so we have concerns about that. We may ask someone to withdraw from practice for a period of time. Know, undergo reevaluation, increase their level of care, um, those sorts of things. So we try to take therapy, you know, have therapeutic interventions. But if we do reach the point where someone just refuses to do what's being asked of them, and there's a risk to public safety, then at that point we have an obligation to turn their case back over to the division, which could result in public discipline. But it it takes a lot. It really, you know, if it really. Do, those things don't happen unless someone is just unwilling to work with us. And that does happen sometimes, but the majority of cases, people are willing to, to take the steps uh, that we ask them to take. I think it's difficult too, because one of the sort of cardinal manifestations of, of substance use disorders is that, you know, when we have them, we just don't see the equation in, in the right proportions right we just don't see the magnitude of the problem versus the magnitude of the risk um and and so a lot of folks out of the gate really feel like this is a tremendous overreaction um but if you fast forward two three four years down the road many times they they look back and they're, they're very grateful right um, our program's really only been in existence for, for three years. And so we're just now kind of developing a, a group of people who... Thanks for kind of, you know, pushing me a bit to do this. Um, we have a lot, of, a lot of new people who, who still just kind of are, are, are not there yet. But Impairment at work, especially for healthcare providers, is often a late, the last manifestation. Yeah. Um, of a substance use disorder, right? We'll let everything else fall apart Absolutely. until the very end we hold on to work, which I don't know if that's just because we value work or it's because it's linked to our livelihood. But by the time it affects our work, we really are in trouble. It's a late presentation. And Absolutely. I mean, we, we, are, we are trained to, to show up and look good and, and you know, despite just being crumbling on the inside, right? And that's what our training teaches us to do. And so you're absolutely right. By the time somebody's disease is showing up at work, they they have advanced disease. You know, Kelly, I, I think you'd agree, right, that there are people who we've, we've really worried would not ever oh. kind of get this. And um, with perseverance and healthy boundaries and that, yeah. that they're now back at work leading healthy productive lives yeah you know, families that have come back together and 
I mean, that's a beautiful and unrewarding thing to see. Um, but it's, it sometimes it's pretty hard work getting there. <laughs> I'm like, but, just give us six months. Right. <laughs> give it at least six. And then or maybe we 12. Could, or maybe 12. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on the what? person. So when someone is referred to treatment, what treatment options are available to them? Historically, these professional health programs have been associated with more abstinence-based treatments and MAUD and some of these other like medication-assisted treatment has not been available. That's what would typically when I've treated patients who have been involved in these programs, that's usually some of the restrictions that have been placed on them. Now, granted, this was years ago and not this current program. So can you speak a little bit about that? Like, what specifically are they being referred to? Like, what kind of options? Is there anything that is restricted? What's available? And is that a barrier to people seeking treatment because they're going to be limited on what they're going to be allowed, not what we would normally offer as far as our other evidence-based treatments? I think one of one of our greatest challenges is is the initial um, episode of treatment, whether that be mo most of our folks need uh, residential treatment, and traditionally uh, healthcare professionals have been treated in facilities with other healthcare professionals. Um, and that's difficult because in in Utah there are there are no treatment programs. Um, like that, and so that means that in order to have someone participate in one of those programs, they they have to go out of state, which is uh, enormously expensive. Um, they're separated from their families. Uh, it's it's very difficult, and 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 many of these people will have lost their jobs and their health insurance, and so it's it, it's very difficult to to insist that someone go to one of these programs. Now, I think we're able to be a little bit more lenient with. Um, with healthcare professionals who are who are non physicians, um, in terms of finding them adequate treatment that is in state. But in an ideal world, we'd have everybody attend a treatment facility that that had other healthcare professionals in it, and had um, importantly, you know, therapists and a medical team that had expertise in in treating this population because it. It, it is a different population, right? Um, it kind of goes back to what Paula was saying earlier, and the, you know, just the, the the fear and the shame and all of those things is is amplified. There's a professional degree of fear and shame, right? That mm -hmm. that um, people really believe they they should have been smarter than this, or they they've you know done something that is that is unforgivably bad, and of course, none of which is true. Um, but after the treatment episode, people can use uh, MAL uh, in, in our program. Um, and so there is, uh, you know, we, we, we've, as long as somebody is under the care of a responsible provider who um, is prescribing um, MAL and, and other modalities, then, then uh, that's okay with us. That's great to know. And you brought up an important point there is also as far as cost, that can also be a burden because I, I've also encountered this with clients that I've treated as well, that 
you, like you said, some of them have already lost their job and lost health insurance. And the cost of their treatment is on the burden of the professional. And and some of the studies that I have read, I mean, we're talking two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars in treatment over that five years, as far as paying for monitoring their testing over that time, and residential treatment and all that subsequent care. It was interesting though, because the study did say that the majority did say it was worth it, even though it was at a high cost. But that is that is something that is is a is a barrier, you know. That is it a challenge, is. and I don't and know how. Yeah, how many times are you finding that that is something that is you're having issues with sometimes engagement? The the cost of initial treatment is is generally twenty thousand or or more, um, and we're having. A, not we, but, but our participants are having more success in getting a, at least some insurance coverage for that. Um, and then the cost of monitoring the urine drug testing may be as high as three to 4,000 a year. Um, and insurance will not cover that. And it, it's a, it's, I don't know that we've had anybody who has said, look, I can't participate in your program solely on the basis of this, but we're afraid that, that it's just, you know, we, we haven't heard that. We know it's a huge ask. And so we recently um, have a study that was done in collaboration with some uh, public health students at Westminster. And, um, and out of that, one of the biggest barriers to participation is, is the cost of ongoing monitoring. And so Kelly and I have been speaking with um, with healthcare organizations in the state uh, and and starting to try to at least plant the seeds that, you know, if you have an employee who's been a good employee and, and you want to retain them, what, you know, would you think about picking up some of the cost of evaluation, some of the cost of treatment, some of the cost of, of, uh, of urine toxicology? And we're trying to think about, you know, creative ways to try to offset some of that because it, it is it is prohibitive mm -hmm. yeah that's it's an interesting issue we have an episode with melissa chang on substance use in the workplace and it's really fascinating to talk to her as from an occupational medicine standpoint in terms of the general public who have substance use disorder and how it affects workplace productivity and cost and hiring and firing and what it takes to be a good place of employment in terms of substance use destigmatization and friendliness and a culture. And, and I'm glad to hear that, that that's something that's being worked on. Cause I'm not sure how friendly our own, ironically, how friendly our own healthcare settings are for this kind of thing. So my question from that is what about qualifying for FMLA or, or under the ADA in terms of that initial period of um, being taken out of work for public safety or to get well yourself? Does that apply for people? Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, as Robert mentioned earlier, most people, once they get to us, have been terminated. And so that's not an option. But for those who are still employed, because we do have some of those referrals or maybe people who have been in the program and have had a return to use and need to step away and, and restabilize, they, they are able to access short-term disability FMLA services um, 
those sorts of things, uh, but not so much when they've been terminated. Usually people will have a COBRA benefit for 30 days if they can afford the COBRA premium. And um, so it's it's definitely an issue, but it is, those are our some, some solutions. And we, we've been working hard trying to make inroads with um, big healthcare organizations in, in the state to try to get upstream of that so that before somebody, you know, call us before somebody is terminated and, um, you know, give, give us a chance to, to intervene with someone and get them treated and and get them well so that they can come back to work for you. Again, this is somebody who has been, you know, valued by your organization, who has who has worked with your organization for a period of time, and and they can be valuable again, probably more valuable than ever before, right? And this is one of the only medical conditions I know of that people can get sort of weller than well, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And if they were a good employee before, they'll be an even better one now. What do we do if one of, if we notice, not as an administrator or a boss, that one of our healthcare colleagues is probably experiencing a, a substance use disorder? How do we approach that? And how do we approach the other colleagues who may not be addressing it appropriately? What do we do? What suggestions do you have? Um, so I think that's a great question. We do get calls from employers um, on occasion uh, concerned about a colleague and and the things that we hear from them are just, you know, well, I'm not sure that there's actually a problem and what if I'm wrong or what if, what if they get fired and um, they lose their license? And so my advice to people is, is a couple of things is that the most compassionate thing that you can do is talk to the person and, um, you know, try to understand what's going on, express your concern for them, let them know that there's resources and support available to them. Um, you know, the other thing is if, um, you know, it's obvious making a report to a program like ours, or even if you're un- uncertain, then we can reach out to to uh, the potential participant and, and talk to them about the program and try to understand their situation. Um, one thing that I often tell people because their biggest fear is this person's going to be mad at me. They're going to be upset with me. They're going to be angry is just, you know, that I would much rather have somebody be angry with me than, than to be dead. And that's the reality of substance use disorder is it is a life-threatening disease. And so if we can start to think about it that way and that, you know, intervening is probably the most compassionate thing that you can do for somebody. And, and people, although people have to have a substance use disorder to participate in our program, they don't have to have a substance use disorder to engage with our program. So let's say that somebody's just not themselves and um, colleagues, co-workers, friends are worried about them and they don't really know what the problem is. We can have an evaluation done that can help pinpoint the problem. Maybe it's not a substance use disorder. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's um, you know some other kind of life stressor. In which case, um, they they don't they don't have to have a substance use disorder. There are other kinds of help that we can direct them towards. That's very valuable. I mean, especially with the incidence of mental health 
disorders in healthcare professionals, and we're not immune, certainly not. And we have high rates of depression, anxiety, PTSD, as well as some of the other mental illnesses. As well as so suicide, right? Mm-hmm. We know that, that suicide rates in, in healthcare professionals are two to four times uh, age and income match controls. And albeit underlying um, half of those suicides is a substance use disorder. The, the suicide is absolutely epidemic in, in healthcare professionals. And so some of these problems neglected um, lead to death. Mm, the dire, that's a very important point. That's excellent. What an excellent point you make too, that if they were a good employee, even in, in spite of their substance use disorder, imagine how much more well they'll be and with the insight of and the compassion of this lived experience of having a condition that that is yeah. very difficult to recover from um, for all the reasons. So so what do you want our listeners to know about a, provide, a professional um, health program? Like what are the key points that you really want to know? And, and I think using this opportunity for advocacy too, which I hadn't really thought of, like what a great way to advocate to bigger organizations and systems. But is there any key points that that we haven't talked about yet? I think just the the takeaways that I would want people to know is that um, I think oftentimes people feel like they're alone and they're the only person in the world dealing with a problem. And so I guess I just want people to know that if you're listening and you're struggling, you're not alone in the struggle and that there is a path forward Um, that if you were to self-report to our program, we may ask you to do hard things, but, you know, things, things that are worth having are, are sometimes difficult. And if you take those steps, um, you know, we see people, um, have, you know, amazing transformations and we feel really honored to witness that. So, um, just know that you're not alone and, and that there's a path forward, even though it may not feel like it right now. And that there's just nothing that is more important than, than your health. I mean, I think mm-hmm. as, as, as healthcare professionals, we tend to think that, that we are the work that we do. But the fact of the matter is that whether we actually do this work or, or not, there, there's nothing more important than, than our health and well-being and that there's always hope. No matter how difficult things have become, no matter what has transpired, there is always hope. There is there's a, there's a path back. Well, that's so well said and it's moving. So, you know, thank you so much for saying that and for being there. So what, aside from people in, well, actually even people in Utah or around this country, we have listeners, actually quite a few listeners in Canada and Australia and in the UK. So I'm not sure if we can speak to their needs, but for listeners in the United States, where can they get help if they fall under this category of being having a medical license of some kind and needing this kind of a program? and they want to self-report or now know they can, how do they access a program like this? So every state will be different, but a place that they could certainly begin is at the uh, the Federation, uh, the FSPHP, which is Federation of State Physician Health Programs. Um, and on there, there will be a list of, um, of resources in their state of uh, professional health services that are that are within their state that they can that they can contact and also call me directly 
if you're in Utah. Mother, right? Yeah. <laughs> just call Kelly. <laughs> just, call, just call me or send us an email. So I mean, if I was if I was in the situation, I couldn't imagine being in the care of two better people, honestly. I so I would encourage people to do that. You'd you'll be in such wonderful hands. And I'm I guarantee that there's like-minded and like like caring people in other organizations around this. Robert, it affects so many of us. Many of many healthcare professionals are living in the shadows for many reasons and it's worth it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.